Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Helen Taylor, who's an emeritus professor of English at the University of Exeter, about her new book, Why Women Read Fiction, The Stories of Our Lives. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, This is a great book. Uh, It's both absolutely fascinating, um, and I think it does a a really important job, actually, um, in the kind of current moment um, for, for the publishing industry, which is in the middle of asking questions about uh, representation, audiences, authors. Uh, and I suppose that the place to start um, is where the book begins, actually, with the story of Gone with the Wind. And, and I'm really interested in how um, that story both, you know, is important to you, but also has in some ways inspired the research uh, that went into the book. Well, first of all, thank you for your kind comments on the book. I um, am a Southern American scholar. I lived in Louisiana um, and I got very interested in Southern American writing. So I've published quite a lot about it. And I was preparing a scholarly book about Gone with the Wind because I'd been writing about uh, late 19th century Louisiana women writers. That was my um, PhD thesis. And I suddenly realised that Gone with the Wind was telling the same story that they had been telling about the effect of the Civil War and a defensive uh, uh, response to to um, you know to all the narratives about the Civil War being uh, caused by the South. So um, I decided that I would write this book, and I started off doing the scholarly work. And suddenly, I found I was talking to people, particularly women, who came up to me and said. Gone with the Wind is my favourite book of all time. You've no idea how important it is to me. I reread it. I um, I read it every few years. I read it in uh, book groups. I I t- um, I watch the film um, dozens of times a year. And I thought this is extraordinary. And what I realised was that that book was something that was had been internalised by women as very important to them because it was about. Um, of, of, it, it focuses on one woman, an epic heroine, which is rare in literature. It's an epic heroine who lives through everything from death, destruction, war. Um, she restores her family's home. She uh, she becomes a businesswoman. Um, and she has a, a very torrid and uh, complicated love affair with a man whom we all desire. He's an, a complete object of desire. And I realised that it was a romance, it was an epic, um, it was a historical novel, and that all those things are very important to women. And that's why I, for the last 30 years, I have been wanting to write this book about what fiction means to women. And it means an enormous amount in emotional, intellectual, and actually spiritual terms. I mean, you set it up really clearly with that. I think the phrase is, you know, that the reading is not just another hobby. And it's really interesting that at the start of the book, you sort of juxtapose the way that on, on the one hand, um, there is a, a dominance of women as readers, you know, re- women are, are basically the, you know, the kind of key audience um, for, for fiction. They're also, as you show later in the book, um, crucial to how um, the publishing industry operates, not just in, in terms of like turning up to things like festivals and, and talks, but also uh, in terms of of shaping tastes, whilst at the same time there's something quite controversial and subversive 
in the act of, of, of women even reading it. And one thing you do quite early on is, is try and sketch a, a sense of the kind of uh, the history of, uh, of women as readers and, and, and women's reading practices. And it'd be great to hear some of that as a, as a way of kind of contextualising the work you've done in the book. Well, reading has been very important in terms of power. If you're illiterate, you have very little power, and two-thirds of the world um, are illiterate, which is a terrible uh, fact. And so reading and being able to read carefully and closely seems to me to give people tremendous power because actually literacy is is what we need um, in a society uh, you know obviously education um, politics and so on uh, uh, the text is is key and women were uh, banned from reading they were not encouraged to read um, and uh, I mean the the women who read in earlier centuries and, and my book really begins with sort of 18th and 19th century but if you go back much further, uh, the people who read were men, um, mainly uh, clerics, uh, mainly religious figures, and um, the church, obviously, reading the Bible was was key. And women were encouraged, or, or were, they had the Bible read to them, because obviously everybody had to um, uh, to, to uh, read religious texts. But and nuns were very key readers. But um, if we come up to the 18th and 19th century, it's clear that reading suddenly becomes something that elite women can do. They, they're taught by, uh, by their fathers, by, by, um, you know, by their, their, their uh, governesses to read. And they read with great uh, pleasure. And they immediately, there's a moral panic about women reading. Um, what might women do if they're sitting there in solitary state reading, particularly fiction, and fiction which begins in the 18th century, uh, fiction as we understand it begins in the, the 18th century? What is it that women might do in their heads? You know, where might they go? What kinds of dissatisfactions and frustrations might they feel when they read about other worlds and other characters? And of course, that's exactly the pleasure that women have got because in a in patriarchal societies, women don't have the power to, and certainly didn't have the power to work, um, to travel, um, to be independent. And reading allows you that, uh, that power. And so, for a lot of women, reading in solitary state, reading together in a gregarious way with their mothers, with their grandmothers, with friends, in literary societies, reading groups, all those things where uh, those gatherings where women could read together. That has been very important in empowering women, empowering their imaginations and giving them a sense of of uh, grasping a world beyond the, their our own experiences. Yeah, I, I think you do a wonderful job, actually, of setting the practice of reading as, as not just a, a solitary activity, but but something that is a, a shared. Uh, well, it's something that's sort of slightly under the radar because uh, one man uh, told me that he thought it was the female equivalent of Freemasonry. And I think it, that's a very good way of describing it because 
it, it is, it's something that women take for granted. You know, women stand at bus stops talk, saying, oh, what, what are you reading at the moment? Um, women share their reading. They pass books on all the time. They go to libraries. Uh, they go to literary festivals, as you um, quoted from my book. And they're, they're going there. They, 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 there is this sense of a reading community among women. And I think this, uh, this sense of female Freemasonry is a very good way of putting it. I quite like that. I, I, I'm, I'm interested actually to go go a bit more in, into that because quite early on in the book, you, you, you think quite a lot about um, how women are sort of choosing, how they're buying, um, how they're they're kind of responding to their, their fiction reading. And I suppose from a, a kind of sociological uh, point of view, uh, myself and my colleagues are talk about this as kind of you know, taste practices. Um, but I, I'm interested to know what the I guess the kind of you know the how, how women's uh, choices and, and, and buying uh, patterns are shaped and, and how they are responding to choices of fiction? Well, I think that it's a pattern that's set up in childhood. Um, most, I know that increasingly men read to, to daughters in bed, but on the whole, women read to their daughters. Uh, grandmothers read to daughters, grandmothers who, who take over childcare from their, for, you know, when their daughters are working. Um, Women tend to be primary school teachers. They tend to be librarians, and these are the places where, as a as a as a girl, you you go to get your reading. And as you get older, uh, as I've just said, you know you share books with your uh, contemporaries. So girls share books with each other. Young adult fiction is an important um, important form of of uh, of reading that is widely shared now, and. Um, I think that this sets a pattern of adult reading. But that said, um, you know, sometimes people say to me, oh, I choose all my own books and, uh, you know, I, I'm not guided by anything. But of course, we're all terribly uh, influenced by uh, bookshop choices, uh, the way in which books are sold in bookshops. So um, you, you, if you go into a bookshop, I'm afraid that you'd still find there's a sort of gendered reading. So there are kind of uh, uh, fluffy uh, pastel colour books for girls. And um, as one as one bookshop uh, assistant said to me, boys like their explosions. And so book, boys' books are in a separate section. And this, of course, goes right through to adulthood, where romance is is marketed entirely to women because women are ninety percent of of readers. Um, and so, you know, we, we we're affected by the publishing industry. We're also affected by reviews and you know newspaper coverage uh, and and uh, broadcasting coverage of writing, which I have to say is more heavily weighted towards men. But um, so women read men's writing as well as women's writing, I'm afraid that the compliment isn't returned. Uh, a lot of men really don't like reading um, women's writing. And that explains why over the last couple of centuries, women have used pseudonyms and initials um, to persuade, well, to, to look genderless so that uh, so that men will read them. Um, if you think of Richmel Crompton and the William books, um, apparently I was told by a teacher that as soon as boys in his class realised Richmel Crompton was a woman, they stopped reading the William books. Yeah, it, it's it's in, incredible the the disconnect actually between what dominates the publishing industry and how the publishing industry functions and then who the audience and 
who, who I guess is, is doing the kind of the labor of um, keeping uh, publishing culture going uh, in terms of gender. Yes. Um, and, and I should say, actually, what, one of the things I, I particularly liked about the book was the way that you, you very early on foregrounded, actually, that, you know, it, it's a book about uh, women, but you're also very attentive to questions of, of race and class and, and how they intersect uh, with gender in the analysis. I was very struck by what you were saying earlier um, about uh, genre. And, and I guess genre is one of the ways that uh, we, we can see these questions of gender playing out really, really clearly. And, and you mentioned romance novels, which um, in, the, in the middle of the book, you, you spend quite a bit of, of, of time um, go, going through. And I'd be interested to hear a bit more about that because romance novels are, you know, really serious kind of big business, but also as a genre, they can be, you know, marginalized, not taken seriously at all. Um, and, and this is in some ways, you, you kind of compare this a little bit to crime or, or sci-fi, which are equally big business, but have, have maybe a different kind of status um, because of women's relationship to them. Well, I'm, I'm afraid that it's still true that if women like a particular thing or women are particularly associated with something, it is downgraded, it is less important, it is less serious, it is less universal. And so romance, which is, of course, a very ancient form, goes right back to the Middle Ages, and it used to be a very masculine form. It's written by men, and um, it was about uh, unrequited love. And um, romance now... Uh, means something uh, which is associated with things like Mills and Boone and Harlequin, which people snigger at. But my goodness, you know, they sell uh, a, a romance novel practically uh, every five seconds. Um, it is huge business. It's huge business in the US, uh, as uh, far far bigger actually in the US than it is in Britain and the rest of Europe. And these books are not to be sniffed at because these are novels that obviously have a um, a, a particular meaning for women, but you know everybody can laugh at that. <laughs> but it is a huge market, and I think I just want to say something about that because women read romance. People think, oh well, you know, it's it's dope for dopes. It's uh, Germaine Greer was very uh, contemptuous of this, and in fact, um, uh, the Mills and Boone, one of the Mills and Boone founders, I think it was Alan. Um, Boone said that uh, they were a form of Valium for women. Well, yes, and we all need Valium, and actually a book's safer than Valium, but they are books that allow women to kind of, there's a safe space in which women can perhaps explore their own feelings about ideal love, about ideal relationships, where they can imagine themselves in a different world. And, you know, we all need that escape. We all need fantasies. And um, I think that, so I think that romance has been and erotica have been very important to women. If you look at the success of Fifty Shades of Grey, which I gather has been the runaway bestseller in the last decade, it's quite extraordinary, it's sold over four million copies. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey, which is a, a, an erotic novel, which imagine, which is absolutely takes the classic romance story. It's a, a poor, a poor, um, sort of rather ordinary girl very young girl who meets a very rich, uh, very sexually experienced and sort of slightly cynical older man who's damaged. He's had a damaged upbringing. This is the classic story of of romance. And of course, it's uh, it's Darcy, it's uh, Heathcliff, it's um, 
Rochester. And what happens is that by the power of her just who she is, her spirit, her her ordinariness, but her integrity, she manages to capture this man and humble him and change him. Now, this is a fantasy that, of course, it's a very dangerous fantasy because women should not imagine they can change men. <laughs> but And we, we mainly learn this through life. But romance is a wonderful place. And erotica, that, that novel, Fifty Shades, is a wonderful space where we can imagine our own power, um, you know, the power of being ordinary and, and taming and winning um, this powerful figure. And that is not an insignificant um, element in, in, in reading. I mean, you, you mentioned Fifty Shades as, as a kind of key text. And what, what, again, what one of the real sort of strengths of the book is, is the way that it tries to, to foreground the importance of the books themselves rather than just thinking about what the, uh, the patterns are, of, you know, who, who is reading and, and what they're reading. Um, and we can, you know, maybe bridge from Fifty Shades to something like Little Women, partially because, you know, it, it's like on the cinema and is, uh, you know, is, is kind of very, very of, of the moment. But it, it, it struck me um, both in terms of the amount of uh, attention you devote to the book and the responses uh, from the reading group um, you, you were uh, working with. That Little Women is, is a really crucial text. Oh, yes, it is. And isn't it fascinating that the film, which has been critically acclaimed, which is hugely popular, which uh, every woman I know has rushed to go and see, um, has got no nods from, you know, the Golden Globes, BAFTA and the Oscars. Well, d in terms of direction. The, the, yeah, and, and the discourses around it have reflected almost um, entirely the kinds of uh, gendered issues in fiction that you you've absolutely. been pointing out. Well. Absolutely, and and uh, but Little Women is 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 a wonderful example of a novel that is uh, entirely centred on women, and just like Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre, which are the most popular novels read by women, Little Women is a novel that every girl has read. Very few boys read it, um, but every girl reads it because it's about a community of women. And as I say, communities of women are what keep reading going, and they're really what keep women going, actually. So the, all those sisters, I mean, several people said to me, I don't have any sisters, but I was fascinated reading about those sisters. And I think that was true of me. I only had brothers. I love my brothers, but I was fascinated by that group of sisters. And the sisters are, they go through all kinds of different sort of phases of life and romance and suffering. And there's a, there's a terrible death at the heart of it, the death of Beth. Um, so for a lot of, a lot of girls and women, that was an early lesson in life, in what can happen in life, the terrible injustices of life. Beth is this lovely, good girl and she dies. And, um, Yet Joe, who is, of course, the favourite of everybody, Joe is this feisty, difficult, awkward uh, girl who does, who seems to do everything wrong. Um, but she's the one we all want to be. And she's just like Scarlet O'Hara, actually. It's exactly the same thing. Um, she's, you know, she, she, she makes mistakes all the time. And women love to read about that. And certainly as girls, I think, um, we, we, we love to read about uh, Joe because, uh, we thought, oh, yes, she's doing all the things wrong that I do. 
I, I wonder if you, if you could extend that a little and, and, and comment uh, as, you, as you've already done actually on, on Pride and, and Prejudice and, and, and Jane Eyre and, and why they have, you know, I guess kind of similar status uh, as in, in important books for women. Well, they they are both books, uh, uh, rather like, as I said, about little women. They both have a woman um, protagonist who is not extraordinary. She is... Uh, Elizabeth Bennet and um, and Jane Eyre are both poor. They have no fortune. They have nothing to recommend them to rich men, but they've got to marry. Um, well, in in Elizabeth Bennet's case, she has to marry in order to survive. Otherwise, she's going to end up very sad and very lonely um, and very poor. Um, in Jane's case, Jane has to make her own life. And Jane is a Jane is a stronger figure because she is more mobile. You know, she gets a job. She goes to work for her employer who, who falls in love with her. Um, these are, these are, are, as I say, they come from the romance tradition, but they're also very new voices because these women writers give those, those characters a strength and a feistiness, which was very unusual for the time. And they, with great wit and irony and, um, passion, they they show how what matters to women and how women can transform um, men. Actually, there it's about they're both books about women transforming um, men and changing the way that men see women, and and that's something that is that is quite appealing to women readers. And it's also they're also books about how you have to read. You have to read men. You have to read the world. Uh, both uh, Elizabeth Bennet and Jane Eyre are readers. And I think uh, Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte make us feel that their reading is what makes them uh, intelligent, uh, sassy and powerful in the end. We were discussing how both... Um... The publishing industry, you were saying... Yeah, sorry, yeah, but both Austin and Bronte are obviously uh, women writers, and publishing industries is has changed an incredible amount since since they were writing. But um, there is still this, um, I suppose, set of problems that uh, w- women writers and women authors uh, face, and and the book is really keen to engage with uh, both um, how women writers deal with the publishing industry, but also the relationship that women writers have with their readers. Yes. The publishing industry has been very slow indeed to recognise the power of women readers, Um, even though it's published lots of women writers. But women writers do tend to have to fight to get a space in publishing, and they do tend to get uh, less critical attention and uh, much more patronising attention. In recent years, the, the publishing industry has had a shock because uh, a publisher called Virago, which uh, modelled itself on American um, feminist presses, Virago uh, started to publish just women writers. And we suddenly saw how many women writers had just been ignored by orthodox publishing houses. And this has produced a, a wonderful kind of uh, uh, plethora of women uh, writing, women's writing 
for women readers to enjoy. And the Women's Prize, which was set up um, in 1991 after the Booker Prize, which was the most prestigious literary prize in Britain, the Booker Prize for years and years had public, had shortlisted far more men than women. And in that year, in 1991, there was no woman on the shortlist. And the Women's Prize, which was originally called the Orange Prize, was set up precisely to um, foreground and celebrate women's writing. And that's had quite an impact on the publishing industry. And other publishers have picked up women writers. Um, they've started to publish them more. And they've recognised there's a huge market out there. After all, we are well over two thirds of the fiction buying public. And it's about time publishers recognise that. And uh, they have started to respond. Um, and Virago still goes from strength to strength publishing writers from North America, um, uh, like Margaret Atwood, like um, um, uh, Maya Angelou, um, like Toni Morrison. Um, all those writers have been published here in Britain, as well as our own um, writers like Monica Alley um, and uh, um, Hilary Mantel. And these, all these writers are now changing the face of publishing, the publishing industry. And one critic I read the other day said, this is, this is the de decade of women, and I hope it is. Yeah, I, I did get the sense, actually, that um, part of the project of the book is to make us much more attentive to the realities of uh, the gender dynamics of, of both uh, audience and, and, and industry. But also it was written with... With, with a real sense of kind of hope, actually, that um, not that things you know uh, will radically change, but actually that the realities might be uh, better attended to or or better recognised. Actually, yes, uh, th that's a good way of putting it. I'd also say that what I tried to show was the diverse responses of women and the seriousness with which women take their reading, and the critical acuity of women readers. I'm, you know, I've always taught in universities and we're used to trying to develop students' critical responses to literature. But it's very humbling to me to meet women who've never been in higher education, women of all races, ethnicities, um, ages, who found fiction for themselves and who often have a totally uneducated response to it, but who love it and who find things in it which that they want to engage with, and they go back to books again and again, and they follow up every suggestion that gets made on the radio or by their book group. Um, and I think publishers really ignore this. I, I And I'm astonished. There was a recent report by the um, Arts Council of England on literary fiction saying very gloomily that it's in decline. And there's not a single reference in that report to readers, let alone women's book groups. And there are hundreds of very active and very engaged book groups all over the country, which are linked with libraries and bookshops. And uh, they, you know, these people, these women are reading very, in the most extraordinarily kind of engaged way. And Where's the Arts Council? You know, why doesn't the Arts Council go and talk to them <laughs> and celebrate them?
No, I, I, absolutely, absolutely, and and actually, uh, and again, what, what one of the the real strengths of the books is to give that sense of of how you know literary festivals, book clubs, uh, in settings as as diverse as as, as places like prisons, are, you know, re- really speak into the um, the liveliness and, and the vitality of. Of, of reading culture. I mean, you mentioned right at the very start of our discussion that this was almost a sort of 30-year um, project for you. And, and it seems a bit uh, sort of strange to ask you what, what you're working on next or, or what you're doing beyond this book. Um, but is this, uh, I guess, a kind of a, a, a finished project for you now? Do, do, do you think Why Women Read Fiction was, was you uh, kind of, uh, putting a full stop on on that set of questions, or are you going to be doing more work in in this vein in, in, in the coming years? I I'm afraid that I don't want to answer that because <laughs> I've I've got a couple of projects. One which has absolutely nothing to do with women's reading at all, um, and but I I'm very interested that people have responded so warmly to my book, and I think that there are political issues here around things like the closure of libraries which I would like to pursue um, because it seems to me outrageous that um, prison, every prison has a statutory duty to have a library and absolutely that's great, but no school has a statutory duty to have a library. You can have a, a, li- a school without a library and that seems to me so wrong. We, we need to be making libraries sexy, I think. And so if I could do anything to make libraries sexy, I would. <laughs> <laughs>